Hey everyone, welcome to the Metal Miner Podcast. My name is Taras Berezowski. I'm the managing editor at Azul Partners. We're kicking things off this fall with a series we're calling Manufacturing Trade Policy Confidential. Our intent is to dig a little deeper into certain angles of trade policy that either don't get reported on by the mainstream media or don't get explored in enough detail. In this episode, Lisa Reisman, Metal Miner's executive editor, talks with Michael Stumo, the CEO of the Coalition for a Prosperous America. Michael's organization represents industries and interests that run all along the political spectrum, from the left to the right, with a focus on keeping the United States on the leading edge of competitiveness. The U.S. back in 1789, when Alexander Hamilton wrote his report on manufacturers, that was a policy to grow U.S. industry from scratch instead of only producing cotton, tobacco, and some agricultural products, which I'm in favor of coming from agriculture. But we could have just relied upon cheap imports from Europe and not engaged in production here. Had we done so, we would have simply been an African colony condemned to poverty. Without further ado, here's Lisa's full conversation with Michael Stumo. Listen in. Well, Michael, if you're ready, I am. So let's start with just kind of a general question, especially for me. Can you just tell us a little bit about your organization and the kinds of issues that you advocate? Sure. The Coalition for a Prosperous America was founded in 2007 among agriculture, manufacturing, and uh, labor members. And the whole point was that on the trade issue, there are a lot of organizations that are working on parts of it, mostly from their sectoral perspective. But this is a macro issue across the country. And at least for agriculture, and it was agreed to by manufacturing and labor. I came from the ag sector, and we started realizing that, you know, these these trade agreements and trade policy, where they were promising all these export opportunities, they never materialized to the extent needed to offset the import market share we were giving up. That was what was paying our bills. And so the trade deficit overall is uh, what motivates the Coalition for a Prosperous America. The manufacturing side includes steel, copper, tooling, tool building, plastics, electronics, uh, Ford Motor Company, a bunch of uh, made in USA retail uh, companies. And on the farm side, we have farm and ranch groups and labor, we have AFL-CIO. And the Teamsters, the Society for Professional Engineering Employees of America, the Boeing Union, and it's un- also unique in that it is left to right. We have everyone from the Trump and or the Tea Party right to the labor union left. So the balance of trade, the fact that the U.S. is has the biggest trade deficit in the world, that other countries have big surpluses like China, Japan, Korea, Germany. They overproduce, they underconsume, they export their overcapacity to us. And we absorb it. And they, uh, that's their full employment program. They're exporting their unemployment to, to the U.S. And uh, that's something we want to address so that we can grow instead of stagnate. Okay, great. So let me just clarify that to make sure that I'm uh, in good understanding. So the organization itself, all of these disparate 
groups and organizations have coalesced around the issue that all everybody's in agreement that we need to address the issue of the balance of trade. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, well, beyond mere trade enforcement, but but it's all involving trade. Great, great. Um, I've put together sort of a series of questions that I wanted to ask you, and I don't know how familiar you are with each of these or not, so I'll give you a little bit of background. One of the issues, um, from a, certainly from a metals perspective that we've looked at, and we are coming at it from a metals perspective, um, involves the notion of circumvention. Uh, you might have heard of this from some of the folks in our industry as uh, commonly referred to as whack-a-mole, um, but really what it refers to is anti-dumping tariffs being implemented and then countries circumventing, finding new ways to bring those same materials into the United States. Um, I'm just curious, you know, from your perspective, do you think that's really harming U.S. manufacturing organizations? And, you know, I think you have an, a, an interesting vantage point. If so, I'd like to understand how and some of maybe you can comment on some of the other trade groups that you're representing or, or groups of industry that you're representing. Sure. Circumvention is a long-term problem across industries. And certainly, as you mentioned, if you, well, of course, all the countries to these trade agreements have agreed to the rules and that they're uh, a good a good thing. And with regard to trade enforcement and other matters. And when you get countervailing duties against a country, uh, for example, Chinese steel or some parts of their steel industry, and they transship through Vietnam or Malaysia or through Mexico to get in here. That's a big problem. It's also, you know, it's, it's rules avoidance. It's, 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 you know, the, the product actually is from China. That's where they're subsidizing. That's where they're selling below cost and they're getting around rules. Everybody's agreed to, but we're seeing that we saw that in uh, bed spring manufacturing where countervailing duties against the industry in one country, they ended up transshipping through another uh, wire, uh, wire rod. Uh, also, uh, washing machines. Washing machines is a big case now where Whirlpool has a case against LG and Samsung, a Section 201 case, which, if successful, would apply tariffs or quotas to all LG and Samsung dishwashers coming in across the world because a few years ago there was countervailing duties awarded as to Korean produced LG and Samsung dishwashers, but they transshipped and shipped through other places. They evaded or circumvented the duties. So they're trying to get duties across the world. The same issue really is for solar panel manufacturers where Suniva, S-U-N-I-V-A, and another company brought a case Similarly, were, similarly, there was circumvention there, so they brought a 201 case so they could catch everything coming in from any country, not just the initial target country. Great. Thank you. And just out of curiosity, do you, in your professional opinion, do you see circumvention as a, is it a growing issue? Has it held steady over the years, or what's your perception of that? I suspect it's it will grow the more trade cases there are and the more global trade uh, increases as it can, because global trade simply increases when economies grow or and it decreases when they're in recession. So uh, we don't really know how much circumvention is going on because Customs and Border Pro Patrol, our enforcement agency in the past 15 years, has been 
focused on terrorism and drugs as far as imported uh, you know, container ships and the like. And so they've let a lot through. But I think the most people are in agreement that uh, it, it, it does in, in, indeed increase. And so a big issue is, will the new leadership of CBP, Customs and Border Patrol, or Border Protection, you know, enforce the rules more than the past? That's a great uh, segue into kind of the next area is what trade remedies would you like to see the Trump administration take in general? And then do you see anything different in terms of, again, I kind of want to focus on this upstream downstream, which you did a nice job of talking about Whirlpool, who we'd consider to be downstream versus, say, some of the steel producers that we'd consider to be upstream. So what, what would you what are you hoping to see from the Trump administration? Well, certainly trade enforcement is necessary. It's insufficient because we have a macro problem. It's beyond one sector. But any sector that is harmed by unfair trade and subsidies and violation of the rules that needs to be, the, the issue isn't whether you know someone else will be affected downstream. The issue is whether somebody subsidized and broke the rules. We all have an interest in the rules being followed. But so the 232 investigation in steel and aluminum is key. There's a 301 investigation against Chinese theft of IP that could involve a very broad range of remedies that could be quite strong, depending on how they go across the Chinese economy. And there's a lot of discretion the president has. A big problem we have in the steel industry had been involved with currency manipulation issues a few years ago, but now we, we have them in a sense of currency misalignment in that while countries aren't directly manipulating to cause the dollar to be overvalued and their currencies to be undervalued. The markets still are keeping currencies misaligned. So the dollar is 25% too strong, making steel and all other goods, services, and labor in the U.S. 25% too expensive and makes incoming products 25% too cheap. That's something that would benefit downstream, upstream, and all of us. In fact, that's how, uh, you know, again, the, the Asian countries in Germany are, are growing. And so there's, you know, the trade agreements themselves, NAFTA and the like, that's a, a, a big issue, but it's sort of hard to see what has worked and what has not worked in trade agreements. So we're actually having a little bit of trouble finding out what, what's a good NAFTA look like, what doesn't it, because some trade agreements were good, some went bad in terms of balance of trade. And it's hard to see that they actually made a, a good difference or a bad difference. It might have been just a waste of time. Got it. So just to sort of recap, you're, it's not a one particular trade remedy, but you think just a, a, this mix of a number of, it sounds like a number of different strategies invoking like the 232 investigation or the 301. Is that kind of what the your organization is looking at in terms of sort of an, I want to call it like a covering the issue on all fronts, would you say? If you're going to balance the U.S. trade deficit, you have to fix the currency misalignment problem. Macroeconomically, that's a clear number one. And uh, we would hope the steel industry would get increasingly active on that. As far as the trade enforcement the mercantilist countries, you know, that you, you hear accusations of the Trump administration being an economic nationalist. Well, they're nothing compared to Germany and the Asian countries. They are very strategic. And so 
really with Trade Ambassador Lighthizer really upping the upping the volume on trade enforcement that's within his jurisdiction is is welcome, like the 301 case. But vigorous enforcement by industry with the International Trade Commission everywhere that the subsidies or violation of the rules exist is really important. Great, great. Um, I'm going to address a what I call a Cato Institute argument. How would you counter the argument that, I mean, this is the famous argument that, hey, low-cost imports benefit consumers and therefore benefit, you know, all of America. How do you, how do you counter that argument or what's your take on that argument? Well, it's baloney. Uh, it's opposite world in this way. Countries lead and grow by production, not with, not with cheap consumption. That's not to totally dismiss cheap consumption, but you, you lead with production, you gain wealth, you gain wage growth, you gain employment with production, which is more important than a focus on cheap consumption. Uh, the U.S. back in 1789, when Alexander Hamilton wrote his report on manufacturers, that was a policy to grow U.S. industry from scratch instead of only producing cotton, tobacco, and some agricultural products, which I'm in favor of coming from agriculture. But we could have just relied upon cheap imports from Europe and not engaged in production here. Had we done so, we would have simply been an African colony condemned to poverty. Uh, Korea, South Korea, was very poor in the 60s, a lot of hunger, digging potatoes with their hands, metaphorically. But rather than focusing on cheap consumption, they focused on building a diverse set of industries and supply chains, and ultimately through undervalued currency, through all kinds of mercantilism, but good for them. And they ended up being a manufacturing powerhouse, uh, Japan the same, going a little further back. So the game is to get uh, production, a solid set of supply chains, value add, employment, and wage growth, rather than to focus on the cheap consumption. Now, for imports, we are less import dependent than any country in the world except North Korea, because we have such a big economy. So the, the import dependence further lessens any theoretical risk for consumer price increases as compared to Germany, Japan, and the others that I said before, which are more import reliant, which have dismissed the argument that we need to focus on cheap imports as opposed to our own production. Michael, that's probably one of the most powerful arguments I've heard, and yet I, well, I haven't heard anything like that. Um, I'm just curious to know why. Why, why, are the fo why are we not hearing this argument? And I love the Alexander Hamilton reference as well. Why do you think this argument's not kind of out in the mainstream press, or do you have any thoughts on that? It's really hard to break through the mainstream press because it's full of naive neoliberal Washington consensus, Bretton Woods free traders that are very hostile to any other viewpoint. You simply can't get it through. I'll get interviewed by New York Times reporters <clears throat> who are naive, unrestricted free trade folks that don't get the real game. They don't get that the U.S. is bringing a knife to a gunfight. And I'll get a lot of interviews, but very seldom will they put it in. They'll just put the opposite story. Also in academia, you just don't get funded. You don't get tenure if you vary, if you, if you vary from the message of the 
the current trade view of priesthood. So there, there is some of that. But, we're, you know, we're breaking through, of course. The president campaigned on this, got elected. Certainly some of my members don't like the president. A lot of others do, but we all like him on trade. Got it. And I think that's part of uh, what we're trying to do here is to uncover some of those angles that we think have not been uh, well covered. So kind of moving into the steel industry, and I guess I could do the same um, and ask you to comment on the aluminum industry. We view them a little bit differently, although we've got both, you know, both industries are kind of participating in the dialogue here. What do you think the steel and or aluminum industries can do to foster trade policy changes that benefit U.S. manufacturing that you would say they're not doing now? Any thoughts sure. On that? Well, sure. You know, I, I understand the 232 investigation is very powerful, can can produce very good results. And that's they almost have a bird in the hand there. Of course, there's been the delays. Uh, but to focus more on the macro side, which also benefits the downstream suppliers, would be important as well. For example, getting back on the issue of currency, like we just discussed, would be really important and ultimately long term would fix the overcapacity and over exporting to the U.S. across the economy, which would make us grow and more markets for aluminum and steel. The, there has been an excessive reliance just on the trade and only on the trade enforcement and the trade enforcement lawyers, many of whom are our members. But perhaps a recognition that is necessary but insufficient would be good. So, so currency is probably the most important thing that the steel and aluminum industries should vigorously investigate as how to fix because our economy can't win with a 25% overvalued dollar and 25% undervaluation everywhere else. Makes sense, and that's helpful. And now sort of for the question that everyone wants to know, at least in our industry, is why do you think the administration is yet to release the 232 findings? I think we were hopeful that was going to be released sometime in the summer. Um, Now we know they have until January, but just, you know, curious to get your thoughts on that, or how do you perceive the delays? Sure. Well, the delays are... You know, we've all heard the excuse, which is we want to wait until tax reform is done. And I guess that's plausible, but they should have released it in the summer. They do have the, the core of it is that President Trump, who has good instincts and had good rhetoric on the campaign trail, and he was inconsistent when he was nominating his key economic advisors. So Trade Ambassador Bob Lighthizer is a Hamiltonian, which I refer to the Alexander Hamilton report on manufacturers. They call, sometimes they call those folks Hamiltonians, which is a economic strategic thinking. Wilbur Ross is sort of as well, but Gary Cohn, the head of the National Economic Council, as well as Steve Mnuchin, the treasury secretary also are important in, as well as their underlings. And they have a very different view of uh, trade, trade enforcement, and have much more of a focus on cheap imports and are not resistant to the argument that enforcing the rules is protectionism. So they've been providing counter influences, and actually they're pretty, you know, they're in the cabinet or close to Trump. And uh, so because of that, plus you have in the Commerce Department, the economics folks there are the same 
as before, and they've never been terribly in favor of vigorous uh, trade enforcement remedies when they have a say. So there, that fight was going on in the summer, which caused the delay. We'll see if they actually resolve it when the tax reform debate is over. Great. Now, that's all the formal questions I had, but I was curious if we, if there were any of the angles that you wanted to talk about um, in greater detail. I loved the, I mean, I think the Alexander Hamilton, I mean, that from us, I, mean, I don't know, Taras probably is, my, my wheel, my, um, my head spinning on, there's probably several angles there. But are there any areas that you thought that we ought to be covering that we, you know, that you haven't mentioned that I haven't asked about? Sure. As to tax reform, there's an insufficient attention to trade competitiveness in tax reform. Instead, the tax reform debate has been determined by a unifactor approach, which is the, the top corporate tax rate of 35%. But how the countries are trading uh, counterparties have used tax for trade competitiveness is they put in border adjustable taxes or VATs, or in Canada's case, a goods and services tax, so that when and, and use those proceeds to reduce other taxes in their country. The result is they have about the same tax load as before, but when they export, they export w with a GST or a VAT rebate of an average of 17%, which is like a subsidy uh, when they export to the U.S. So they come out without a full tax load coming into the U.S., for example. 17% on gross, not net profit, really big. And so when the U.S. exports to Europe, Canada, China, other countries, we pay not only our full tax load, but their 17% on gross VAT or GST, which is like a tariff. Indeed, Europe, in 40 years of tariff cuts, we still pay the same border tax going into Europe as we did before, but we cut tariffs and didn't replace it with anything. And so the, what's missing from the tax reform debate for trade competitiveness is the potential of, for example, doing a U.S. goods and services tax like Canada, which would raise about $1.3 but using that money to fully credit against payroll tax, which is the biggest tax businesses pay in the country, bigger than income tax, corporate income tax by far. What that would do it would keep our taxes tax load the same for U.S. sales, but we would export free of both payroll taxes and the U.S. GST for cheaper exports. And the imported products would come in paying our 13% GST, but wouldn't have gotten the payroll tax offset. That's really big. And they didn't consider that in tax reform, which should have been done. Super interesting. I have to ask you, do you have a white paper on that topic? <laughs> uh, we have some information on a two-page overview sheet, yes. I would love to see that because I think that's an angle that we, I mean, we haven't tackled or really gotten into tax reform. I know there's been a lot of discussion about border taxes I think there's a lot of misinformation in the marketplace, and I don't think a lot of companies really understand how that would work. 
Um, That's correct. And there's different <laughs> flavors of border taxes. There's chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry, and you want to get the flavor right. And the one the one I just described we think is probably the best with a payroll tax offset, but uh, it is worth exploring, yes. Great, right. Well, I know because I run this company, so I know what the payroll tax burden is, and it's not nothing, as you said. It's, it's, a, pretty, it's a pretty chunky amount. Um, right. No, this is super helpful. Anything else that we have not covered or angles that you think we ought to explore and, in fact, or folks we should be speaking with that, you know, are kind of maybe outside of our metal producing and manufacturing community? Our research director, Jeff Ferry, who is, he has, he's, he's pretty accomplished. He's got degrees from Harvard, the London School of Economics, and he does all of our research on competitiveness strategy and, you know, what countries do to win, uh, what we do, to, which makes us seemingly lose <laughs> and that sort of thing. So he's, he's one uh, person that you could interview. And there, there's others we could talk about another time as well. Terrific. Actually, I would be interested in that. I think one of the things that I've struggled with, and this goes back to the issue, I think we've talked about it a little bit, um, just in terms of covering the angles that are not widely reported. So even if you, I mean, I did this one day because I had nothing else to do. No, I did this one day. I looked up, um, tried to understand who from a an international trade perspective inside of various think tanks had some alternative points of view on trade. Um, and kind of more along the lines of what you've been talking about. That I find that they're, very, I mean, 10 to 1, they go the other way. So it's actually a challenge to find experts that um, have well-articulated cases and, um, you know, can kind of put the strategy and the theories all in play. I've found that we've struggled to identify those folks. So I would welcome uh, the conversation with your colleague. I think that would be Sure. Yes. Uh, Ian Fletcher is another. He's on our advisory board, but he's an economist and he wrote a book called Why Free Trade Doesn't Work, which is a very technical takedown of uh, free trade theory in an alternative perspective. And he's very articulate. So he's another name. Uh, but most of the community has been it's been divided between you know free trade and non-free trade or the fair trade left, which is typically more social justice. Mm -hmm. And uh, not that social justice is not worth talking about, but it tends not to get to the core economic issues causing the world imbalances. Actually, the, you know, the global imbalances in trade are at the heart of the populist uprising around the world, certainly in this country, because you're gutting your manufacturing sectors in England. So you have the Brexit in the US. So you have middle America go away from Obama, Clinton, toward Trump, uh, et cetera, in many of these countries that have the trade deficits that are absorbing surplus country overcapacity, you're causing any income inequality, social breakdown, and a rise in populism, which, you know, I have a soft spot, spot in my heart for certain, again, flavors of populism, but uh the challenge to the global trading system is so stark because of these imbalances where you have Asian countries in Germany and some, you know, the big surplus countries exporting their unemployment and overcapacity to the deficit countries, peripheral Europe. It could break up the EU because of the internal imbalances there with Germany being the, the exporter and everyone else absor absorbing their products. 
and having unemployment. It'll probably, you know, the EU is unlikely to survive for 20 years unless they change it. So the trade imbalances are going to the core of not over only our economy, but the great breakdown and distrust of the global system. Let me just ask, add a, ask a follow-on question to that. Um, for those that are sort of the net exporters, the Germanys of the world, I mean, I was just listening last week, NPR did a quite an interesting story about sort of the German Mittelstadt and sort of the philosophy around labor. And it was interesting because it was a lot more focused on collaboration between labor and management and led to some of it. Do you think that these exporting countries are where they are because they're not playing by sort of fair trade rules or they're subsidized or is it goes back to the currency issue? What's your take on that? Currency is the majority. Plus there's other things that have to go on. China did it with currency and uh, capital controls as well as massive state capitalism subsidies. We're one reason our country is behind the curve on China is because we still have a feeling a, that China is impoverished and not a threat. B, oh, this communist system you know, can't work, but they figured out a way it does. Germany is a, a separate case because they bought into the euro at a, a pretty decent level. Then through their labor and business cooperation, kept wage increases down. So they were undervalued coming in. They kept their productivity rates up, their wage increases down, which made them more competitive, which should have raised their Deutschmark price, but didn't because they were tied into the euro. Then they did something called vendor financing, which was all the money they got, they used to finance more purchases of German products, further expanding their exports. But again, their Deutschmark could not adjust. So they have become the biggest net exporter in the world. They have a surplus with China, they have a surplus with almost everyone. They have a surplus with peripheral Europe, which is suffering, which can't recover because they can't devalue their currencies to become more competitive. And so the currency union of Europe, so those three things came together in, in Germany's case. You need undervaluation as a, as a necessary part, plus a couple other things. The, the currency only union of the EU probably can't survive without either going with a fiscal and a banking and a regulatory union to become a full banking, a full nation state to even out those imbalances naturally, or else they just have to break up into separate nation states fully. And the Germans get that. I've asked them. So interesting. So interesting. Did you hear, by the way, did you hear that NPR story on the? I did not. I'll have to forward it to you because I think they touched on a number of these issues that you just talked about, except for the last point about. Yeah, the Mittelstadt and the labor business cooperation, I think, is interesting, and it is something that would be great to explore that sort of thing in the U.S., because they're all producers, right? Our group, Agriculture, Manufacturing, and Labor, we consider self, ourselves all American producers. And to, to get together strategically for your country would be a good thing. But Germany has a little more going for it and things that we have to neutralize if we're going to outcompete them. It's again necessary, but insufficient. <laughs> right, right. No, this is this has been absolutely fantastic. I think um, what I'm most surprised about is all the different things that 
I haven't heard in the common press on this whole issue. So that's exactly what this series is designed to uh, uncover. Um, so I think that's been great. I was going to say, I think the whole Alexander Hamilton argument, we always hear about Adam Smith, but we don't hear about Alexander Hamilton. And I think the only other area, um, Michael, that I didn't really ask you about, but I, maybe I should just sort of broach it because I can see it coming up. Um, in another discussion. So a lot of folks think that um, the U.S. agricultural industry has been very heavily subsidized. And I'm just curious how you, you know, how you think about the agricultural industry here in the U.S. And I don't know if you want to compare it to the metals industry, steel industry or not. But I know that's something that people have often criticized that say, hey, you know, agriculture has been really protected here in the U.S. What's, what's, what are your thoughts on that? Or how do you respond to yeah, that? Yeah, that's, that's largely true. Uh, to the extent it was true, it was true a, a generation ago. But since the 1996 Farm Bill, that's been largely not true. So the subsidies really only occurred in a subpart of agriculture in the past, which was corn, soybeans, wheat, milk, maybe cotton in places, Livestock was never subsidized. Fruits and vegetables weren't. Those are very big sectors uh, and garden, you know, other garden crops and certainly seafood, which is fish farming rather than agriculture. So it's a subset. And, and these days, the corn and soybean subsidies are largely limited to subsidized risk insurance, nothing else. And uh, milk is a little bit more, but it's 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 pretty subsidy free in that costs are often prices are often below the cost of production and the sub, subsidies don't keep it up. So milk is the only place where arguably some subsidies are still there. The rest is the rest is just as to risk insurance in the row crop markets. So it's not a big issue uh, these days. Okay, great. That's good to know because I know that's one that comes up, and I know it's going to come up when we start talking about potential retaliatory trade issues. And I kind of purposely did not steer our conversation that way. But that's one of the arguments as well that kind of comes up where people say, hey, if you implement something kind of strict with a Section 232, you can expect retaliatory um, trade actions. And they talk about how this will really negatively import. And I think they were talking about grain exports and in particular, the backhauling of large cargo, or not cargo, break bulk container shipments, which sort of, I think, come in with steel and go out uh, with grain. And that, that Section 232 will have some retaliatory impact. I don't know if you want to talk about that or not, um, but I thought I'd throw sure. that out there. But we sure. have a specific interview covering that as well. Well, on the retaliation, we always hear, oh, you're going to start a trade war. And, um, of course, we're in a trade war now, and we're losing. We're not responding. So we've preserved certain trade enforcement provisions in our law that we can use. We can also use a WTO, of course. So the 232 is well within our rights to use as a sovereign uh, country. The only way other countries could start a so-called trade war is if they took us to the WTO and won. And that takes a few years. And then if they win, they ask permission to have uh, retaliatory tariffs where they would pick a sector and it could be grain. That would be another year or so. So we're a few years down the road before that happens. We could either choose to uh, 
uh, stop whatever enforcement action we're doing with the 232, and then they would not be able to have WTO-approved tariffs on us. That's happened before. Or we could continue, depending on our choice. And certainly with the 201, the 232, and the like, we are we could also come up to a fight where the WTO uh, could challenge us and the Trump administration could challenge it. It could be a, a huge fight, which would bring into the inquiry whether the WTO causes more harm than it's worth. Uh, there, there is that potential of that fight in a couple years. We'll see. But the, the short answer to the trade war is there's a very procedurally regulated process of a WTO case and permissive you know, tariffs thereafter, which is a few years away in which we have plenty of opportunity to respond uh, if we want to do so. Other countries, what they do is they'll violate the rules. They'll wait for someone to challenge them. If they do challenge them, they'll, they'll run out the clock and they may or may not stop the practice. But in the intervening few years, their industry got relief and they benefited. That's the game. Got it. Got it. Well, Michael, this was awesome. This is a, a lot of good nuggets here and a lot of arguments that we just simply I haven't read about or seen anything about it. So I'm super excited from a content perspective that we can cover some areas that I think have not seen the light of day or very little light of day, at least from my perspective. Um, so I want to thank you for that. Thank you. My pleasure. Happy to be here and, and talk with you and meet you. We'll keep up the good work and I'm sure we'll talk again. Great. Thanks so much, Michael. Take care. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share with a colleague or a friend. You can also follow our podcast on SoundCloud. Have a great week.